All right, if you would take your Bibles and go to Matthew 12. We'll be in verses 38 through 50. Matthew 12, 38 through 50. Let's pray. Oh, God. I need you every hour. There is no doubt about it. I just feel so much more of that need right now. God, drive away distraction this morning. Drive away the demons this morning. We come gathering as, as a body. It's something that your people have done for 2,000 years. And the very simple commission to go includes teaching them everything that you have taught us. So we gather around the scripture. We may not feel like it this morning, but Lord, we need to be here. It is what you've called us to do. And so, Father, I pray that, that as the, the responsibility falls on my shoulders... that you would be glorified. Because I don't feel adequate to do this. This is a dangerous place to be. So open us up, God. Expose us. Grant us the gift of repentance and faith for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew twelve thirty eight through 50. This chapter, though covering several topics, seems to be highlighting Jesus' dealings with the religious leaders. We know that as we continue through the book of Matthew, these interactions are going to ramp up and their intensity will lead us eventually to Golgotha. Legalism. And the gospel of Jesus Christ will forever be in contradiction to each other. So as we come to 38 through 42 of Matthew 12, we have yet one more of these interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders. Notice verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, 
an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So I want to set the stage for this interaction. The way I want to go about this is by defining what a Pharisee is. Or to use another name, legalism. By defining legalism, we will see more clearly why Jesus had so many sharp disagreements with these religious leaders. And we have to look no further than to Luke. So if you take your Bibles and go with me to Luke 18. Luke 18. Verse 9. This is the words of Luke giving a, some background to why Jesus told the parable that we're going to read here in just a little bit. So notice with me Luke 18. He also told them, that's Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Luke tells us that a Pharisee is someone who trusts in themselves. Not just self-confidence, but rather confidence in their ability to be righteous. They were convinced they could be righteous. They trusted in themselves to be righteous. They truly believed that when others were bad and condemned by the law, that they were the exception to the rule. We saw in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught only those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness were filled. In other words... They longed for something outside of themselves. The Pharisees felt no hunger for righteousness because they believed they already were. They, there was no sense of desperation, no hunger because they were engorged on themselves. Now, it's not possible to be that full of self and not have the second part of Luke's assessment of a Pharisee. A Pharisee treats others with contempt. And that word contempt is an interesting word. It can mean to view something as nothing, invisible. To hold something at the lowest possible scale. In the case of a Pharisee, he holds almost everyone else with contempt. The reason is because they are convinced of their own righteousness. A Pharisee has to minimize others in order to maximize his own righteous standing. So how do these aspects play out? Notice the parable. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So legalism is a deep darkness because it shrouds itself in so much artificial light. In fact, so much artificial light that it cannot see that the legalism itself is on the same lowly level with the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, and the tax collectors. Legalism has a deadly, has deadly consequences because of the person who adheres to this way of thinking is not right with God. Nor can they be until they get downwind from themselves like the tax collector did. He knew he was sick. He knew he needed help. He knew he needed forgiveness. And because he was hungry and he was thirsty for righteousness, he walked away from that moment justified before God. By the way, you're here and you are certain that everything I have said so far most appropriately fits someone else and not you, then that's legalism. And that sets the stage for verse 38. Let's read it again. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now that sounds really sincere, doesn't it? There's no possible way that this was a sincere request on the grounds of previous miraculous works and the Pharisaic responses. Notice with me, just back up a few verses in your copy of the scripture to verses 22 through 24. Matthew 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. That's a dumb thing to say. And Jesus, of course, in the following section, pokes holes in that logic. They heard of, or were eyewitnesses to, a demon-oppressed man being delivered, and the response is, oh, that was the work of the devil. Chapter 12, back up a few more verses, verse 13. Here he is in the synagogue with a man with a withered hand. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Back up to chapter 9, verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. I mean, exactly how many miraculous works do we have to see to be convinced? And here they come demanding a sign. Mark 8.11 reads, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
Mark exposes their motive. They were far more interested in trapping him as a motivation for the request, but he wasn't remotely interested in being their dancing monkey. Listen again to the verses that couch our text for today. Back up, or go forward, I guess, back to chapter 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Not only is it sick that they would come to Jesus under such a false pretense, but make such a demand as to work a special sign just for them. Motivations are never hidden from the all-seeing eye of God. So in his response, Christ not only refuses to give them a sign, but counters with a one-two punch. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. This is at first, seems a bit over the top. But he's just simply coming straight from the prophet's. I know we're doing a lot of page flipping. It's good for you. It's good for your dexterity. Go with me to Jeremiah. I want you to see this for yourself. Jeremiah 3. Verses 6 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there she played the whore. And I thought that after she had done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So Israel is out committing whoredom, and what he's actually talking about is idolatry. Verse 8, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a degree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. You understand that the northern kingdom was completely obliterated by Assyria. Assyria was God's tool for obliterating the northern kingdom for their idolatry. But Judah didn't pay any attention, verse 9, because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Again, we're not talking about adultery. We're talking about idol worship. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord, which is exactly the motive of these Pharisees, of this adulterous generation. So God considered any form of idolatry to be adultery with him. The reason is because God views his relationship to people as a husband would view his wife. As a husband is covenanted to his wife, so God is covenanted to his people. 
They were unfaithful because rather than seeking him through their redeemer, they were spiting him through their regulations. Their rules were keeping them from repentance. Their rules were their God. Real repentance flies in the face of the masquerade that they were playing. Real repentance recognizes that the rules a person wants everyone to think they're keeping, they're really breaking. And this is the whole argument. If you would, go ahead and turn there to Romans chap- of Romans chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says. He hits us with this. Romans 2. So chapter... One of Romans, all the Gentiles, they're bad. Chapter two, he turns to the Jews. And then, of course, in chapter three, all have sinned and fall short. Look at Romans two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. These Pharisees had a major problem. Real repentance leads us to a real Savior, a really good and a really kind Savior. But they didn't need a Savior, did they? They didn't need a Savior because they they were Pharisees. And Pharisees trusted in their own good behavior to get them where they need to go. Though he's not going to give them a sign like they want, he will consent to an Old Testament picture. So Jesus in Matthew 12, cites the historical account of Jonah. Jonah's ordeal of being in the heart of the earth for three days in the belly of a fish was really a big neon sign pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. A man is cast into the darkness of death in order to rescue others from death. And you guys remember the story of Jonah, right? Big storm, Jonah's on the boat, Jonah knows it's his fault, Jonah knows that if he goes in the water, they get rescued. You guys, okay, and so, so Jonah go, Jonah takes a leap into death in order to rescue people. Okay? Now I lost my place. <laughs> um, and is brought back, and in so doing, his message reaches the Gentiles who repent. Does that sound like the gospel? Okay. It's sad that the Messiah came fulfilling those things and that generation didn't believe. Matthew Henry in his commentary put it like this. He said, For none are so incurably blind as those who are resolved not to see. As obvious as the resurrection of Christ was, including all the accompanying evidences like eyewitnesses, the payment to the soldiers to conceal the matter of the disappearing body and the like, he, Jesus, knew they wouldn't believe. Yet Nineveh, a Gentile city, repented at the very sorry sermon preached by a half-digested, regurgitated, rebellious prophet. 
He offered them no hope at all, but simply proclaimed that Nineveh would be overthrown in 40 days. Can you imagine that? You got this guy, the, the foreigner, and he's walking through your streets, and that's the only thing he says. 40 days, and you guys are gone. All of you. is over. No mention of God in his sermon. That was it. 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. No mention of repentance. No mention of the mercy of God, which is exactly what Jonah was so afraid of, and they turned from their sin. Jesus shows up to the most well-prepared generation of Jews. He knew They knew the scripture well. They were beyond worn out from Roman rule, and all the signs of the Messiah's coming surrounded this man, Jesus, and they didn't repent. He embodied and preached the gospel of God's mercy to them. And they didn't repent. And as, as if that weren't enough, a Gentile queen, Sheba, traveled who knows how far. From the ends of the earth? That's a long ways, I'm pretty sure. To spend time with Solomon. Solomon was as great in his wisdom as the miles were that she traveled. And now someone greater than Solomon has spanned the far distance between man and God. And that generation of Jews didn't have to go anywhere to find him. And he came to them. And they had the convenience of being in the presence of the one who gave Solomon his wisdom. And how did they respond? With unbelief. The wisdom of God on display before their very eyes. And they rejected him. Now, as if to prove this point... (laughs) Matthew goes into a really hard text. Well, Jesus speaks a very hard thing. Notice verses 43 through 45 of Matthew 12. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now we could debate precisely what this means regarding someone who has been had a demon exercised out of them. But the interpretive clue is found in the very last sentence. So also will it be with this evil generation. The Pharisees have had their time to accuse him of doing his miracles by the power of the devil, which is a horrid misrepresentation of the power of God. But Christ is doing these amazing miracles by the power of God. He is displaying the presence of the kingdom of God in his ministry. So regards to the nation, his presence as the promised Messiah and all those accompanying displays of power among them is likened to a house that's been cleaned out. Some people responded very positively to Jesus and were excited about the possibility of what he could be. He was always followed by a large crowd. John reports, though, in John 2, verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that their belief in him wasn't saving belief. In other words, Jesus didn't trust people. They were excited about him. 
but in a few short years, they'd be screaming, crucify him. The house had been cleaned out. But it wasn't, in the final analysis, a saving work of grace. The latter condition is far worse than the first. There's an average of 4.4 Bibles in every American household. But the Bible bears little to no relevance on the lives of Americans. We can rehearse all the facts about Jesus. But such knowledge does not radically change us. Here's the point. A neutrality toward Jesus is seven times more wicked than rejecting him out of ignorance. While, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So in the middle of this mic drop moment against this wicked and adulterous generation who he is condemning for the rejection of him, someone interrupts him to let him know that his family's outside. This begs the question, what would you do if your child or your brother or your sister was gathering large crowds, and by that I mean tens of thousands, and simultaneously ticking off the whole of the religious leaders of the day? Would you feel like you needed to intervene just for the sake of your own reputation? You didn't really want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Mark 3, 20 through 21 reads like this. When he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Uh, and when his, fa- his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Is that what's happening here? Likely. His family wasn't feeling the, his family was feeling the pressure of having a celebrity as a family member, and they weren't believers. Mark, or John 7 tells us this. They felt the need to quiet him. His message wasn't sitting well. However, Jesus takes the opportunity to properly identify those who were really related to him, and it wasn't the people standing outside. Instead, he begins pointing at his actual followers and and identifies them as his family. Now, Carson, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this text, points out that, quote, we do not make ourselves Jesus' close relatives by doing the will of his heavenly Father. Rather, doing the Father's will identifies us as his mother and sisters and brothers. You can't earn that spot. You can only live it out. That begs another question as we come to a close here. What is the will of the Father in heaven? We can rule out one thing. Notice John Gill's comment here. He says, This should not be understood of a perfect obedience to the will of God revealed in His righteous law. For since this cannot be performed by any mere man, no one could be in such a spiritual relation to Christ. Stop and digest that for a second. In other words, the will of God is not you giving a perfect performance by your righteous behavior. This, as we have seen clearly, is condemned by Christ because it's not possible. 
So if you think you've obeyed the law well, well enough, then you're condemned for your pride. The Apostle James points out in his letter that if you're, you've broken one law, you've broken every law. So John Gill's point is that no one could actually do the will of the Father if that was the will that Jesus was talking about because every one of us has, have failed on this front. So then what is his will? It would be great right now to actually hear the voice of God. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be nice to be like, what is your will for my life right now? I want to know. I want to hear audibly. God, just tell me what is your will? Because I've got question marks all over my head. Males there? Yeah, raise your hand. I got question marks. What is his will? I don't really know. Well, there's good news. There's good news. The Bible actually says what his will is right now for all of us. Okay, let me... God tells us what his will is for all of us. All right, good. This is good news. And we can walk out of here today knowing with absolute precision what his will is for our lives. Each and every one of us in our individual stations. We know, we know, we will know. Piercing. Enlightening. Refreshing. Terrifying. Life-altering voice of God. Can be heard today. And he will declare for you today what his will is. John chapter 6 verse 40. For this is the will of my father. This sounds pretty good. I mean Jesus just assumed in Matthew 12 that whoever does the will of the father. Well okay here it is. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. The will of God is to look upon Jesus and to believe. And this is not because He works miracles or gives signs or meets your demands, but because He has single-handedly atoned for your sins by dying on the cross. This is not the kind of belief that believes one time at some emotionally charged service back when we were children, but the kind of belief that perseveres and holds fast and bears gospel-rich fruit. So how do we apply all this? Let me ask this. Are you guilty of making demands on God? We often do uh, a tit-for-tat with God, don't we? God, if you just do this, or that, then, then I'll believe. Or, or, or I'll, I'll obey. And the sad reality is that Jesus traversed the Judean countryside working indisputable miracles. And many of them saw this on a regular basis. And the final analysis still demanded his death. The question is not, what does God need to do now to win you over? But will you believe because of what he's already done? Secondly, along with this, I have to ask, what more could we demand of God? Are we to be condemned right along with that generation of Jews who saw him face to face? We have a preserved historical account of what he's done. 
And we have the testimony and the letters of the Apostle Paul and the specific directions of the apostles through their letters. We have 2,000 years of church history and account after account after account of men and women interacting with God's word and their lives being forever changed. You have ever replenishing mercy from God granted to you each day of your life and each breath you breathe being ordained by a kind God. What more do you need to believe in him? Third, are you disappointed that God wasn't more specific about your situation when it comes to his will for your life? Can I be just honest here? What makes you different than the Pharisees in this regard? They demanded a sign from heaven. And even when the very one who they were speaking with was raised from the dead, they glossed over it like it didn't matter. Here's what I get from John 6, the verse we read just a little bit ago, that the most important thing to God is the gospel. And you believing the gospel, depending on the gospel and bearing fruit for the gospel. To think that something else right now in this moment or forever in your life is more important than that, than the gospel means it's time to evaluate your spiritual condition before God. Truth is, nothing more needs to be said other than repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. God, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a legalistic, self-righteous Pharisee. Because in the final analysis, Lord... I want you to do something great. I just do. I want you to do something amazing and profound so that, that my faith can be bolstered. But the reality is you've already done it. You've already done it. You sent your son. I ha- I've read it. It's here in this book. What more do I need? My biggest problem is that there's wrath being stored up for the day for the day of judgment against me but you gave me Christ what else do i need and even if i lived in confusion the whole rest of my life and i just simply held to the cross cuz that's all i had then praise be to you nothing else matters besides this good news of Christ so God, I'm, I lift up each person here. I'm not the only Pharisee. I'm just not. I'm not the only one who says, yes, Lord, I know what the gospel is, but now what? That's all that matters. And Father, as we we close this time, God, may we be resolved, absolutely, unshakingly resolved that nothing else matters except the gospel. And as we go about our week, Lord, and we find ourselves thinking like a Pharisee, 
Stop us. Stop us in our tracks. God, remind us of the massive log in our own eye that we can see clearly, Lord, for the sake of our family members, for the sake of our co-workers, for the sake of our church, God. So that we can see clearly what direction we're supposed to go. Take away the legalism. Help us to see the artificial light behind it, Lord. That we would run to the light, your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.